couple of months ago, videos started appearing online showing a beefy-looking bald man decked out in tan clothes surrounded by dozens of guys in black uniforms, and he's delivering a speech. As you listen and study the footage, you realize that this is a Russian prison, and the man at the center is trying to recruit the inmates to go fight in Ukraine. Do you have anybody who can pull you out of the slammer when you still got 10 years on your sentence? There are two who can get you out. Allah and God, and it will be in a wooden box. I'll take you alive, though I won't always return you that way. He then gives the prisoners five minutes to decide if they'll join his mercenary group. The man speaking here is Yevgeny Prigozhin, an ex-con himself and now a jack-of-all-trades when it comes to the dark side of the Russian elite, or the especially dark side, let's say. He's Vladimir Putin's favorite chef, a restaurateur from St. Petersburg, who caters for the president and supplies food to the military and many public schools. He operates so-called troll farms and an empire of fake news outlets that he now openly admits were created to meddle in politics, particularly in the United States. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, not just this February, but all the way back to the start in 2014, Prigozhin's most important dirty work for the Kremlin has been through his mercenary group, the Wagner Private Military Company, or PMC. So let's get into Yevgeny Prigozhin and talk about who the hell this guy is. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. This week's episode is being released a little early, ahead of Thanksgiving Day in the United States. If you're American and celebrating, gobbling down turkey, watching the NFL, or observing the holiday in whatever way you do, happy Thanksgiving from me to you. Meanwhile, back in Russia, Yevgeny Prigozhin has been in the headlines a lot recently, thanks largely to his mercenary group, which now includes thousands of recruits from Russian prisons. On this week's show, I spoke to a whole gaggle of journalists and analysts about Prigozhin, the Kremlin's troll king, warlord, master chef, so on and so forth. Before jumping into today's interview, allow me to remind listeners that Medusa now relies on contributions from our international audience to sustain our work. Every day, millions of people from Russia and other countries read our news coverage. Even though they're now based abroad, our journalists obtain exclusive information about what goes on behind the closed doors of the Russian authorities. In English, our team delivers Medusa's most important stories and reaches thousands of journalists and professionals all over the world with a special newsletter and podcast. This one, in fact. So please visit our website to make a one-time or recurring donation and tell your friends and colleagues about our fundraising if you can. All right, let's get to this week's show. Alexandra Prokopenka is a political analyst whose essays frequently appear at the Carnegie Endowment. Earlier this month, she wrote an article arguing that Russia's loudest, most hawkish public figures, Prigozhin included, are often only play-acting the political significance they appear to have on social media, where many observers, like me, go looking for signals about the sympathies of Russian civil society, particularly the pro-invasion crowd. I asked her how she explains Yevgeny Prigozhin to people who don't know or don't understand who he is. Well, I typically say that uh, Prigozhin is a member of uh, Putin's inner circle who does for him some uh, strange, unusual jobs and operates in the marquee area of something security services or uh, most oligarchs don't, um, don't want to operate. Mm -hmm. 
And I also uh, will tell uh, this person that he is Putin's chef, providing some background that he built up his uh, money with his uh, ready-to-eat fabric and state contracts with schools and with the military, and that he lost all these contracts, and that he set up his mercenary group, the Wagner's group, who is probably since 2014 in Ukraine and who also operates in Africa, in different parts of Africa, doing uh, whatever they are doing. They are doing political stuff. They work as paramilitants, the bodyguards, African leaders. They work as security on gold mines and uh, oil pipelines. They operate in Syria, and there was a huge conflict between Russian Ministry of Defense and uh, and directly Prigozhin, uh, who denied uh, that he was connected to this Merit to Wagner's group previously. And I know that he was involved in um, he was he interfered in U.S. elections, but that wasn't my not my area of my particular expertise. So I know that uh, from from the media and not good news. Yeah. Right? Can you talk a little bit more about the conflicts that Prigozhin has with? with what would be considered, I guess, like Siloviki or other elites. You had this very interesting article earlier in November in Carnegie where you talked about the the war hawks on Telegram, including Prigozhin's like various media outlets, and how they're kind of only pretending to have political significance. Or rather, they're they're sort of misrepresenting the nature of their significance. Because obviously, if, if Prigozhin's a member of Putin's inner circle and doing kind of odd jobs that other oligarchs don't want to do, like he has... He's important, obviously. He has he has some kind of power, but apparently he's in opposition to other people that you describe as having kind of more real power or more established or institutional power. Like, what's the nature of this conflict? As I see, Prigozhin became very useful to, to Putin when uh, the conflict in the Ukraine was started. And uh, speaking about uh, the starting point of the conflict, uh, I need to point that it was not February 24, but 2014. Since when um, uh, Wagner's group are in uh, in Ukraine, so he was extremely helpful in market areas, and as far as we know, Putin doesn't like to operate in market areas because he fe- he see himself as a legitimate president, a, le- a legitimate person. So what we saw after the con- uh, after the Russian invasion to Ukraine was started, that this market area became more clear to us. That's how we saw Wagner's group and uh, and that's how Wagner's group in this in this area were legitimized. And Putin's inner circle, it's not five or ten persons. There are much more of them. I think that in terms of influence, I estimate that influence of that Prigozhin's influence is much less than influence of, for example, Yuri Kovalchuk, who is also a member of Putin's inner circle but who also has at his disposal lots of different assets. I mean, financial assets uh, like uh, so gas insurance company, bankruptcy uh, in so financial institutions, and also national media group, a national media group with lots of traditional media, and they are producing content for series, and they are producing movies. They're producing lots of content which um, can be used to, to influence people. And also, people are familiar with the matter saying that Sergei Kiryenko, the first deputy chief of the presidential staff, is also well-connected and really close to Yuri Kovalchuk, and uh, he's, uh, he's part of his clientele. So 
here is the oligarch and a member of Putin's inner circle who really defines the politics, who can influence the politics and who also could influence Putin's decision. I don't think that Prigozhin has such kind of influence. He's still a sort of manager who can make Putin's life more comfort and who can operate in such zones where uh, no one wants, uh, no one wants to operate. Once I explored the issue why only firms connected to Prigozhin were interested to in uh, Syrian oil pipelines and uh, in Syrian oil. And I spoke to, to a top manager of the um, Russian oil company, and he said that no one wants to work in Syria, neither Lukoil nor Rosneft. There is no Russian big oil company who really wants to work in Syria, even with the safety guarantees. So that's why everyone is okay that Prigozhin is here. I had a question about all these kind of these levels of elite and these sort of groups of in terms of like distance from from Putin and the nature of their service to him. Are the kind of allegiances here, are they always shifting? Like right now, it seems based on what I've been reading that Prigozhin seems to be kind of in working with Kovalchuk and like Kovalchuk is maybe using him. Is it one Kovalchuk or there are two? There are two that's the brothers or something, no? Uh, uh, there is a bunch of Kovalchuks. Okay. So <laughs> uh, there is two brothers of Kovalchuk and they have lots of rebels or relatives. Okay, all right. Like, like 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 Rottenberg's clan. So there right. is a Rottenberg. I see. Okay. Well, so it, is it possible? I mean, for the last like eight years, has Prigozhin always been considered kind of working under or with Kovalchuk? Or is that something new? And is it possible that like a year from now they'll be fighting or something? Like how fluid are these these kind of elite groups? Because like, like sometimes the way when you read about the, the various Kremlin towers, right? Mm-hmm. They're like always at war. You almost get the impression like, okay, like there are these clans and they, they're they're lifelong. And like, as soon as I remember that Sechen doesn't like this guy, that means that like next year it's the same thing. But in fact, are they always like changing? Like is, is somebody like an enemy one day and an ally the next? Like how, how fluid is all uh, that? There is, the, the, there is no strict bound, boundaries between them. I can say that after the invasion, uh, the boundaries changed a little bit. Mm. And we still uh, don't know uh, for sure where they are right now. Mm. But you are right. A couple of years ago, I um, I was among those guys who say that okay, Session don't like Chemezov, so they will never that they, they will never sit um, uh, you know on, on the same table. They, they will, but but now, uh, so what we see that there is a peace camp and there is a tiny one. There is a war camp, and I think that. The members of this so-called war camp are, of course, are Medvedev, Dmitry Medvedev, are Ramzan Kadyrov, and also Prigozhin. Those guys who once uh, who, who go public and asks for escalation in Ukraine. But neither Kovalchuk's, nor Rottenberg's, nor other oligarchs groups who are close to Putin. I never saw anyone among oligarchs, among rich people, who are saying that, "Hey, go on, let's let's continue, let's escalate, let's continue the slaughter." They're all losing money. And I don't think that Prigozhin losing losing money on this war. Mm. Uh, so that's maybe it's one of the points. And, and, and the war for him is, is an opportunity to increase his political score. Roman Badanin is the founder and editor-in-chief of Againstva, a collaboration of journalists who have been targeted by the Russian government for their investigative reporting, which he launched after the authorities banned his previous outlet, Projekt which also published investigative journalism. But Danin told me that Prigozhin's license to operate 
Depends on the nature of the work. If we are talking about like military things, literally what is going on on the battlefield in Ukraine, for example, or in Libya, of course, he is not like absolutely independent players there. Of course, he has a lot of connections and a lot of advices back and forth from him to military command and from military command to the precursion. Because, well, uh, I'm not a military expert, but it's very hard to imagine that someone like Prigozhin can do what he does absolutely independently from, from the army. In my view, it's just impossible. What about politically? I know that Medusa recently released a report alleging that he has plans to build a political movement that could, could grow into a political party and that he's going to be Vladimir Mazhinovsky 4.0 or whatever. I really do believe that Prigozhin has some very specific and in some cases very detailed political views. Of course, he is one of the leaders of Russian conservatives. Whatever we mean, like if we think of conservatives like Mr. Malafiev, Mr. Prigozhin, Mr. Kadyrov, he is definitely one of the key players in that part of Russian political spectrum. Of course he is. But again, how independent he is in his political and his political games. In my view, in his political games, if we are talking about like federal level, as we call it in Russia, he is not, he is absolutely dependent on some other forces in Russian leadership. I don't think that he is the independent player in terms of like, for example, just imagine, we know about Mr. Kovalchuk and his empire, and we know that Kovalchuk is really influential as, and really independent and really close to Putin. In this view, I more believe in the version that uh, Prigozhin is just one of the officers of Mr. Kovalchuk in terms of political games. That's my point of view. And we know some like some proofs on that. Okay. One of the one of the lenses or the ways of viewing who stands where in the Russian elite that I've I've read is there are, are people that have something to lose in this war and there are people who do not. And the people who do not have much to lose in this war, they're kind of betting on escalation. They're pushing for more escalation. And then the ones who obviously have things to lose, they're like, let's just dial it down. Let's let's get all, get out of these sanctions. This is a this is not good for business. It's absolutely it's absolutely correct. And you know what, Prigozhin bets everything he has, absolutely everything he has on Putin. That's the point. In economic terms, in political terms, even in his personal life terms, because well, his life is in danger if Putin loses. Well, let's say. Although Putin is an absolute evil, Putin at the same time, he's a, let's say, meticulous manager in some, in some matters. And Putin really likes when his officers, when his subordinates perform tasks well. And Prigozhin, well, again, he is absolute evil as well. But he's one of such subordinates. He tries to fulfill and even in some cases overfulfill his tasks. Of course, in his, again, in his vicious sense of this word. 
I can tell you like a couple of stories about Prigozhin, which we know for sure. Uh, as you know, we wrote a lot about Prigozhin and specifically about his role in, uh, in Russian affairs in Africa. And what we found, Prigozhin had a lot of emissaries who operated in about, I don't know, up to 10 African states, including Libya, for example, where the war is going on. And all of those emissaries of Mr. Prigozhin, they have mobile phones issued by Prigozhin company. And phone numbers for all of those phones, they differed with the last two digits. He called every freaking morning, every freaking day to all of his delegates in all those African countries asking them about the updates. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine like, you know, the manager of, I don't know, McDonald's <laughs> who right. called every freaking morning to all of his restaurant bosses in 10 countries on the continent. He is like, we call them like control freak. He's a control freak and he wants to perform well in Putin's eyes. Putin, Putin likes, let's say, brave guys. People who are ready to commit, in some cases, who, who are ready to commit crimes. As we call them, Dervskie in Russian. Putin likes Dervskie guys. Like Kadyrov, Prigozhin, or for example, probably you, you should remember a guy his, his last name is Kiselyov, who is the head of like, uh, like one shady foundation from St. Petersburg. He was previously uh, a criminal. And Putin likes those kind of guys. And I don't know what's the reason behind that. Uh, maybe because, you know, uh, once Putin was, well, Putin actually worked for bandits in St. Petersburg and Leningrad back in the 90s. And now probably he likes to command bandits. God knows, you know. I think as he described, he's a man <laughs> uh, who wears uh, many hats. Right. I think he's a he, he's a he, he's a smart guy from a tough background, mm -hmm. and I think he is someone who is flexible and always trying to find the next opportunity. That's John Lechner, a journalist and researcher who often reports from the Central African Republic and Libya. I asked him about the Wagner PMC's activities in Africa and how they look in the continental and global context. He's been able to leverage his position from, you know, apparently a, a restaurateur to caterer for, for the military. I think a lot of people find the transition from supplying food and logistics to the military to mercenaries strange but but in, in reality uh well you know he he's just kind of switching logistical roles in a way and i don't think it's as surprising to folks who work in government contracting and, and logistics to see those types of of transitions is that common do people that i mean people in the mercenary world do they often they have other dealings with with militaries, or they—it's like there's there are gateway businesses to that sort of thing. Or well, I mean, I think to to a certain extent, 
when we look at Russia's kind of national security infrastructure and, and business, we, we should also look at, you know, I, I sit here in Washington, D.C., and obviously there's an entire industry behind that as well. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes a lot of the, the aspects of uh, mercenaries in Russia that we tend to exoticize, like the fact that they're veterans, that they were part of special forces, that they have some sort of ties. I mean, that kind of applies to any uh, military, private military company. Mm-hmm. These guys are always look. You, you look to hire people who have these skills. You're looking to hire folks who have been in government because they have the networks that they can then leverage for future government contracts. So a lot of things that we would call in D.C. like the revolving door, I think, is something that similarly applies to Russia as well. I mean, folks are always looking to find ways to rationalize or or frame their business interests as within the interests of the state. The fact that there are similar kind of connections that, that cross the, the government-private divide in, in Russia shouldn't be surprising coming from right. the West as well. I see. And what about the Wagner Private Military Company? That's, that's Prigozhin's outfit. Its activities in Africa, are they? Is, is it just one of a bunch of other mercenary groups that are active on the continent, or is it particular in some way? Well, I mean, for, I know that Russian journalists have drawn a lot of attention to some of the atrocities or specific war crimes or, you know, torturing executions of, of civilians and, and I guess maybe enemy combatants, I'm not sure. But Wagner has this reputation for being especially brutal. Is that is that the case or is it just one of a bunch of other PMCs? You know, I, I think it's a good question. It, it touches some of the interesting aspects of, of how we what we choose to define as a mercenary. Mm-hmm. So let's take the context of the Central African Republic. Russian PMCs are by far and away not the first mercenaries to arrive in the Central African Republic. I think in many respects, what Wagner represents is kind of the logical conclusion of trends in private warfare globally, more generally. In the early 1990s, you had the the end of the Cold War kind of brought about a situation, especially in Africa, where a lot of local governments could no longer rely on great power competition to further their own domestic positions. And so there, a market was created with you know, lack of American and Soviet support for local militaries for a company called Executive Outcomes, which was founded by a South African, Eben Barlow, who was in a position with the fall of apartheid that he had access to a big pool of, of white South African mercenaries who were no longer employable by the post-apartheid government. In recognizing this opportunity, he was able to contract this new company, Executive Outcomes, out to governments of Sierra Leone, Angola, and it created a lot of discomfort, but internationally. At the same time, they were successful in creating ceasefires in Angola and Sierra Leone. Uh, how long those held, you know, we can talk about that. But that was kind of the first time that we saw this very flexible kind of standalone private army that, that was really kind of out there on, on the front. A couple of years later, uh, with uh, September 11th attacks and the uh, war on terror, the United States saw a massive outsourcing of uh, military roles, most famously uh, with Blackwater, but tons of other companies such that by, I think, 2010, for every American soldier on the ground in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was one contractor. And I think Wagner is sort of a product of 
uh, I think we've seen kind of reports of the the kind of Russian Ministry of Defense looking at these trends, you know, for following uh, what's going on in Iraq and Afghanistan and seeing the value uh, mm -hmm. in, a, in a mercenary company. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think there's a certain level of flexibility that's permissive within Russian domestic politics that allows Russian PMCs to function almost as a hybrid of executive outcomes and Blackwater. Blackwater very much sought to embed itself as much as possible with, with the American government, with the idea that the more deeply you're embedded, the more recurring revenue that you can get from contracts, the more necessary you are to each operation. And so they frame themselves as part of America's total force on the ground. I think what's a little bit unique about Wagner is that I think that they are, they likely, I mean, we, I don't know for sure. My guess is that likely they try to do that same type of embedding, but also they seem to be free as well to go out and seek contracts with other governments, potentially like executive outcomes. And so I think that flexibility is something that's very new. And it's something that I think that they've chanced upon, but I don't think that now that this product is out there, I don't think that uh, it's going to go away. And uh, what, what the Russians are offering is a very offensive role. It, it's resulted in, like you said, a lot of human rights abuses that we don't see, mm -hmm. don't see elsewhere. And so when we compare it to American firms or South African firms, we're not seeing the same types of human rights abuses. But they're not the only mercenaries that are in these conflicts. And in the Central African Republic, in that context, the armed groups that they're fighting against also heavily recruit mercenaries. But the mercenaries that they recruit more locally from Chad and Sudan are not obviously of as much concern to the West in terms of perceiving that as kind of a threat to stability or American or Western interests on the continent. So are there are there places that Wagner is active today where, at least judging by, say, statements by U.S. officials or just the attention of the Western media, where it's safe to say that nobody really gives a shit if Wagner's busy there, that they, they have like almost a license to be active in certain places because of geopolitics? Yeah, I mean, I think at, at the end of the day, and, and I've I, I've written about this before. I think if we look at a place like the Central African Republic, it is the least developed, poorest country in the world. I love the country, mm -hmm. and I really wish that it was a greater priority. But I think, unfortunately, the the reality is is that uh, it is not a priority for the United States. It's not a priority for France, as pissed off as they get about what Prigozhin is up to over there. I mean, the the reality is is that the lack of attention, the French military withdrew despite the fact that the conflict was still ongoing, uh, essentially leaving, in, in many respects, the government in Bangui in the lurch when they first reached out to these Russian mercenaries. And so, part of the reason that they're there is because other people absolutely don't care about the conflict. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the threat rhetoric that comes out of it doesn't take into account any type of sense of, well, what, what are you going to replace it with? If you really want these Russian mercenaries out of car, what's your plan for actually intervention that is going to improve Central African lives? And I think that at the end of the day, 
people in DC, Paris, elsewhere don't really want to move beyond uh, rhetoric and, and potentially sanctions. What are some of the the goals or the missions that Wagner has been brought in to attempt in car across the continent? Yeah, like we were kind of talking about before, if we look at Wagner as kind of just another private military company, we shouldn't be surprised that they're in Africa because Africa is one of the biggest markets for any PMC. Like if you're a mercenary company and you're not in Africa, it's kind of like, well, what are you... It's like being in tech but having no presence in Silicon Valley or something. Like, yeah, what, like, what are you, what are you doing? That, that's kind of the market. And so, you know, each, uh, each country, the, the context for the outreach is very different. In the context of Central African Republic, from the perspective of the Bangui government, they were under uh, and still are under arms embargo. The problem with that was that essentially the government only controlled the capital. And outside of the capital, you have powerful armed groups kind of roaming the countryside who have access to the diamond and gold mines. And, and that cash flow allows them to buy weapons because at the end of the day, they're going to smuggle things in. And you know, arms embargo doesn't really apply to armed groups. Uh, so they were heavily outgunned at the time. And uh, that kind of created the, the context in which Wagner came in at first as trainers. I was in Bangui in 2020. During elections, the various armed groups, some armed groups came together and, and marched on Bangui to try and overthrow the government. And Wagner, together with UN peacekeepers and some Central African forces, they defended the capital. You said Wagner and UN peacekeepers were side by side? So this is a little bit, this is uh, a little, it's a little bit hazy around here. The issue in a lot of these contexts, but especially Carr and Mali, is that you have a group like Wagner who is technically on or is on the same side as the UN in the officially recognized government. And they're fighting against armed groups that are, in a lot of respects, a lot worse. So in Mali, you know, they're fighting against uh, or allegedly fighting against jihadist groups in Car. A lot of the guys on the other side are not good guys. And so in this moment, they were on the same side defending the internationally recognized government. And, you know, one of the things that you'll hear in Bangui from, you know, even humanitarians and others in the know is that they are thankful for Wagner having defended Bangui at that time. And the counteroffensive, the issue is that the counteroffensive, which then pushed back a lot of the armed groups in 2020, that's when we really started to see a huge uptick in human rights abuses committed both by Wagner and the government. I think the most important thing is that people just need to remember African agency. So what is, yeah, could you, like, that's, I know this is like, this is a trope for conversations about Ukraine is also, you know, especially when, since if I'm involved, I'm, you got, there's you got one American at least. So like, that's already a bit problematic, but yeah, ideally they're only listening. Nobody, they're not talking, but since we've already violated that, what does it mean in this context to say, don't forget about African agency? Let's just take a very simple example. Central African Republic is bigger than Texas. It's larger than, than France. It, it's, a, it's a place that has uh, suffered instability for decades, civil war for at least a decade. 
however you want to count, there's around 14 different armed groups fighting against or with each other, government in Bangui, and only about five to six million people in, in, a, in a country the size of Texas. So vast tracts of land that's often crossed by huge herds of cattle. Around 1,000 mercenaries, even 2,000 mercenaries, kind of the estimate that we have for maybe at any given point for Russian PMCs on the ground. They will not control events on the ground. Imagine saying that a thousand soldiers can control a country the size of France. By that, we mean that any new force that is coming into a context as complicated as CAR is very often going to run into challenges in the same way that, you know, the United States military ran into challenges in Afghanistan. And so narratives that kind of show Russians as exerting total control over events on the ground or that show Africans as kind of perpetual victims really fail to see the ways in which local governments, local actors can take advantage of Russians to further their own aims uh, in these contexts as well. Mm -hmm. it, it's always a much more complicated situation on the ground than I think a lot of the more journalistic coverage lends itself. Roman Dobrehotov, the second Roman to appear on this episode, is the founder and editor-in-chief of The Insider, a Russian independent online magazine that focuses on investigative journalism and debunking fake news. The Insider, incidentally, is Bellingcat's chief partner on Russia-related content. I asked Dobrehotov how Yevgeny Prigozhin manages to wield so much influence without any official title or role in the state. It's not like your official position defies your power. It's how you are close to Vladimir Putin personally. Right. You can be you can be a minister, you can be a governor, you can be a high-ranking official, but that does not make you powerful at all if you are not in like in a close relation with Vladimir Putin and vice versa. You can be no one like Prigozhin, but you suddenly are more powerful than most of Russian ministers. So it, it is it is a medieval structure in Middle Ages. It was also, your power also was very personal. It was not that institutionalized. Uh, so you could be, I don't know, a duke or uh, some kind of, I don't know, baron or something. But that, that, that will not be uh, meaningful if you are not from, in, in some relationship with some powerful pe people. So the same is in Russia and actually it, as all medieval structures, it is very complicated because it's not like, uh, this is hierarchy that, uh, these people are more powerful and this are less because it is, it also depends on what kind of power you can execute. For example, we know that Ramzan Kadyrov can kill anyone without any consequences. And we know that Session can imprison anyone if he wants to, but Session cannot kill anyone and Kadyrov cannot imprison anyone. And it, it is because they have different instruments and they have different zones of interests. And it was very interesting to, to watch when they had some conflict, uh, because of oil in Chechnya, 
and Vladimir Putin had to personally meet with them publicly in cameras, showing that he is a mediator and that like everything will be okay because these are two powerful figures and they just, you know, they can't fight against each other because it will crack all the system. So Prigozhin, he is in, in this way, he's closer to Kadyrov because he also is a person who can use his brutal force when it's needed, but he has no real political and uh, economic power. And we see it in the conflict with Biglov, for example. So Biglov is just St. Petersburg governor from United Russia. So he has no real importance, but after Prigozhin had opened conflict with him, everybody noticed that like actually Prigozhin can't do anything with the governor. So he criticizes him openly. He wants to open some criminal investigation against him, but, but he can't do it himself personally without Vladimir Putin deciding that it is needed. Are there any powerful elites in Russia today who do not rely exclusively on Vladimir Putin for their power or influence? You said previously that you have elites like like Kadyrov and uh, the Kavalchuks and the and 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 Timchenko who are weak, I suppose, or they they they're, they are where they are because they're loyal. And then you have people like Patrushev, like he's different. Is that, would you, is that what you're saying or? I think Patrushev is not very different because his security council has no real official power, but Bortnikov is, is different in this case because Bortnikov officially is the head of FSB. So there are certain people who have this power, but not a lot of them. And, and all of them came from the Putin's team. So. It's not like there are some charismatic people inside the system who can be considered some possible competitors or someone who can have some different opinion on, about the future. So all, all these people came from, from his team. And, um, I think that Putin trust more those people who has no official power, like Patrushev and Prigozhin, then to Bortnikov, because Bortnikov is potentially dangerous for him. You were mentioning that different elites have very have like a license to do specific sorts of things outside the law. Basically, Sechin can get anybody jailed, frame them, or do whatever he needs to. Yeah, to settle his political disputes or economic disputes. What about Prigozhin? Does he have a special license to do things that? Kind of like he's, I, you've been describing him as this like criminal, I don't know, like, like thug that can, that is, that Putin has sort of started using more and more since 2014. Like what is Prigozhin's special license right now? Well, I think that uh, his position is changing quickly after the war because we saw that before the war, he had to be under radar and he was always rejecting any responsibility. And uh, for example, he went to court against the insider and the Bellingcat when we wrote about him as a founder of Wagner's group mm -hmm. and sponsor of Wagner's group. And, um, I think that this, I stopped following it, but I, I think that this trial is still underway and I bet that Prigozhin will win it in Russia, of course, though he openly already admitted that he is founder and sponsor of Wagner's group and is now building a very big business center in St. Petersburg called Chevaka Wagner. So he's 
publicity changed. So he only used at first his uh, like press service to answer some journalists' requests and usually denied everything and just saying some old words to journalists. But now we see that he went like 100% public and uh, started openly creating some projects. He also said that like, yeah, we involved, uh, we interfered in uh, American elections. Right. Yes, uh, I'm the leader of Wagner Group and we now openly ask everyone to join uh, Wagner Group, et cetera, et cetera. So it looks like he is going into politics and it's, it's even likely that he can create some official political party and something, but that doesn't really change that much now because still he is 100% dependent on Vladimir Putin and the system will not allow Prigozhin to do anything without Putin's order. There is also some tension between FSB and Prigozhin and also FSB and Kadyrov who state they want to have a monopoly on mortars and on political control so they don't like this kind of competitor. So it will not be easy to Prigozhin to become a real big political figure. So I think he doesn't have any real license to anything. Even Kadyrov is more powerful because at least he really can kill journalists, for example, or, or someone. Prigozhin, yes, he can kill some unknown bloggers if he wants. He can threaten people or possibly even throw some zelonka at these people, but not uh, really some political power. And I don't think that will change anytime soon. On November 12th, a Telegram channel with ties to Pirgozhin's mercenary group shared a video showing the apparent execution of a man named Yevgeny Nuzhin, a former Russian prisoner who was recruited to fight in Ukraine with Wagner. He was either captured or surrendered in Ukraine, and he was later traded back to Russia in exchange for several Ukrainian POWs. After the swap, if the video is as authentic as it looks, Nuzhin somehow ended up in the custody of executioners who used a sledgehammer to kill him on camera, crushing his skull with several blows. It's a very disturbing video. Prigozhin initially praised the footage as excellent directorial work and called it the punishment of a traitor. And then he later claimed that the executioners were working for the CIA. BBC Russia journalist Lisa Focht spoke to Nuzhin's relatives and investigated this grisly killing. If you just think about how for years, you know, my, my colleagues, uh, my friends have been reporting about Prigozhin, about his connections to, to the Wagner Group and, you know, some other projects. And he's a guy who, you know, loves to sue journalists. And so many times he won in courts and those courts, they find journalists who dare to investigate his activities. And now after the, you know, after February 24th, he's just there saying, you know what? I, I created Wagner. I just did this group and they just opened this, you know, like huge office building in St. Petersburg and no one's hiding that. And I think it was Dmitry Paskov, Putin's spokesperson, who said that uh, Evgeny Prigozhin is someone who cares like deeply about Russia you know, something like that. And again, this video came out, I think it was 
13th of November. And again, like after this video came out, no one, no one has really reacted. And the Kremlin said that we don't think it's our business and, you know, nothing from the investigation committee, even though it's had Alexander Bastrykin. Yeah, your article has a great line where it's like, oh, Bastrykin's been very busy. He, you know, he attended to a cat in a tree and, and uh, you know. Yeah, exactly. And this is. Opened a library or whatever. and Yeah, yeah. And there was something wrong with some like elevator in uh, you know saint petersburg and there was a exactly very busy and like something was wrong with the kindergarten in like Novosibirsk. but uh, the fact that hundreds thousands of people just saw this public execution you know happen never caught his eye for some reason and it sends a strong message and i guess there are people who will think yeah, you know, like the strong arm, this is how things needs to be, this is how things need to be handled. But for other people, and again, even even some mercenaries, this is something like unspeakable and horrifying. And I'm not even talking about the fact that because people forget about it, this is part of the new normality right now, I guess, that someone like Prigozhin, who's not an official, who's not involved, you know, officially with the Ministry of Defense, can just come to a penal colony and recruit inmates, convicted criminals, some of them convicted for murders, for, you know, horrible felonies, and just take them to the front line. Right. And the families, the the relatives, Nugent's relatives, if we assume that he is indeed, was he, indeed he was indeed executed, as it would seem in, in the video, his relatives, you found that they, they haven't really had even a single phone call from no. any officials, an FSB agent apparently called them inquiring very vaguely but the prison's now hanging up on them yeah the prison hanging up hanging up with them so after he was captured after they saw this interviews that he gave to ukrainian right. you know journalists and bloggers in captivity they where he said he was you know, he wanted to fight for ukraine and that he claimed that he where was, he said he that surrendered he wanted, and so on. yeah he, he claimed in captivity that he surrendered himself yeah. that he wanted to for Ukraine, that, and there are questions about whether he'd actually surrendered and so on. Yeah, he, do, he 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 do, he doesn't support Putin. Well, anyway, the bits and pieces from from those clips actually were part of this video of his execution. This is how it started, right? So it's it's definitely relevant. So when they saw those interviews, they they started to you know they they they, they tried to talk to the Ministry of Defense, but they they didn't you know get any meaningful replies and just people hinted, you know, your relative is a inmate, he's a prisoner, we don't understand what he's doing on the front line, it's not official, right? So the Red Cross couldn't help them, and they also called to this uh, penal colony in Rizanska Oblast, where, where he was before he went to the front line, before he was re- recruited to the front line, him and more than 90 other prisoners of this penal colony and they didn't know what to tell them. But now after this video of his execution was released, they just hang up on them. They block Evgeny Nozhin's wife's number. And it's, of course, a terrible, you know, uncertainty for them. Even when you think, well, even given that they claim that when, when they last spoke to him via Skype or, you know, FaceTime in, in August and he told them, that he was planning to join Wagner and go to Ukraine. Uh, they asked him not to do it, and his wife 
begged him and, and she cried and she asked him, please don't go. And he decided to go and they don't really understand why he did it. Because in this interview, he said that, you know, he could use, you know, like social networks in, in, in the penal colony. What we, we found is, you know, contactive pages he had too. And he posted some videos from this penal colony anyway. And he said that he saw, you know, like videos from Ukrainian bloggers and thought that he wanted to help Ukraine. And this is why he decided to give himself in. But when you kind of like scroll through his profile, he doesn't look like someone with very strong, you know, like opposition views. He looks like a person who's really nostalgic about the USSR. Yeah. On his old pictures, he posted a lot about, you know, the power of, you know, like the Russian soul, about Orthodox Christianity and, you know, like good old times and uh, some far, you know, right memes or something like this. But uh, we didn't notice something you know recently he hasn't posted something like this only in the past as well as you know pictures of his wives and sound with comments like my eagles or my love or something like that so it's hard to say to actually be like certain about who what what kind of a person this man really was given that he spent more than 20 years in in prison for a murder and he also injured another person and he tried to escape not successfully and he, he actually was only supposed to get out in 2027 but again for his family his motives are not clear whatsoever and they were not able to talk to him after he was captured they actually left comments saying something like we miss you come home Please, you know, like hold on on YouTube under those interviews. And in one of them, the, the journalist who was interviewing Nuzhin, she she even read one out of light and it looked like he was going to cry. So it's not clear what happened to him whatsoever. And now what they told us, they just really want to know what happened. And they really want to bury his, his body. But, but you can't. Because no one knows where it is. No one knows where it is. And the most horrifying thing about that, that today, I think, Evgeny Prigozhin said, there's like a really famous Russian saying, nobody, no case. And coming from him, given that many people suspect that he has something to do with this video. Again, we don't know for sure if, you know, Evgeny Nuzhin was killed, if he's dead, because no one talked to him, no one saw his body. As Evgeny Prigozhin pointed out, but this is what we assume, and this is definitely what his family thinks that he was dead. His wife, so his daughter-in-law, told me that his wife couldn't even watch this video, and I totally understand there because it's horrifying. There's also this discussion about, especially in Russia, I think, and this is what uh, Evgeny Prigozhin's relatives are also thinking about: like, should we blame Ukraine for exchanging him, even? if he was sincere about, you know, wanting to fight for Ukraine. But Ukrainian officials, you know, they've been vague about this whole situation. In the end, they admitted that he was exchanged, but they insist that he consented to it, that he knew that he was going to be exchanged. But what Ukrainian officials say, look, we can be responsible for what happened to this person in Russian captivity. Because in the end of the day, you know, tortures, murders, and being a mercenary, actually, 
those are all, you know, felonies in Russia. You can't do this. So Ukrainians, you know, they say, yeah, we understand that some people, you know, feel grim about the fact that this guy was exchanged, especially given the fact that President Zelensky has said on numerous occasions that they encourage Russian soldiers to give themselves in, that they're not responsible for his horrible death and for this execution. So, yeah, a lot of really, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty and there are a lot of really, you know, troubling layers to this whole story. And it's often, it's often the case with Wagner. I got the impression also from, from your article that it seems like Wagner or maybe even Prigozhin specifically, they're able to be involved or even to negotiate some of these prisoner exchanges. Like they can either, what I understood is that the, they can either threaten to execute the Ukrainian prisoners that they have in, and sort of, you know, bully Ukraine into trading back the, you know, their, their turncoat mercenaries or whatever, or they have other means of doing this, but like it's, they're involved in the negotiations. There was a speculation from Alexei Rostovich that he can't imagine the situation where Wagner said, look, we need this guy, especially after what, after he, what he said in those interviews, we want him back. If you don't do that, we're going to execute, you know, 20 Ukrainian soldiers. And Alexei Rostovich, again, there was a pure speculation, but he said that he could imagine something like this and that, that, you know, will be like a really tricky situation for right. Ukrainians, because at the end yeah. of the day, their priority is, you know, getting Ukrainian. their soldiers back. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what we learn from our sources that, yes, it appears that Wagner, because they have their own, you know, like established, you know, like official like positions on the on the front line and no one's hiding that Russia today, I think they just issued this whole, you know, documentary about Wagner. So this is how official it is. It's like no one is trying to say, like, I, I remember how Putin for years would say that those people, they're like volunteers or they just you know like people guarding oil factories in syria no one says it now it's just like part of this whole landscape yeah we have you know regular army units and we have wagner so it appears that they indeed have their own prisoners of war and this is why they're able to make their own you know exchanges and like a separate capacity to negotiate in, in a separate capacity to negotiate we don't have any official you know like information sure. because ukrainians obviously never confirmed that yeah. and russian ministry of defense which is kind of like the body which is responsible for conducting those prisoner exchanges they never said anything about that as well as they never said anything about the whole practice of recruiting you know yeah. prisoners so then how how like powerful do you think people or you know the listeners of this podcast listening to this, how powerful should they think Prigozhin is? Because I, I feel like I read, on one hand, I read things saying Prigozhin can go anywhere he wants. He has access to the prisons. He's, he, you know, he's one of Putin's favorite guys. Uh, he can basically, he can get away with murder, literally. He's, he's, he's rich. He has all these defense ministry catering contracts and so on and oil deals. And the guy's really powerful. He's a, he's a true oligarch. And then you, I also read, well, the defense ministry just uses him to manage Wagner, but Wagner is essentially the state. It's not really a private military company. It's really the. It's really just a, a shell company for the military. And Prigozhin's wealth is all dependent on whether Putin likes him tomorrow 
and he's not it's not you know he's not really like a player he's like a he has a lot to lose here and he's not like a true elite like how wh- how do you see him i don't think that those you know two statements contradict each other that much <laughs> to be honest if you think of that oh man uh, i mean obviously i think it's fair to say is that the regular you know russian army is underperforming in ukraine right now this is not what they expected and I think it's fair to say that Russia needs Wagner to fight in Ukraine right now, especially after those humiliating defeats that, you know, they endured during summer and this September after they had to leave Kherson. And if you read, and this is very often like a very valuable source of, you know, information about what's going on on the front line. All those, as we call them, Z channels, you know, like on Telegram, run by pro-Kremlin or journalists or some bloggers. You know, they love Wagner and they love to talk about how effective they are because they're an official, because they don't have to follow any rules, you know, because they have their own funding and they don't really answer to the Ministry of Defense. Uh, and this gives them a certain amount of liberty. At the same time, I know that some people, you know, like say that Prigozhin is probably going to be, you know, we think he's going to be the next president of Russia or something like this. I don't think that actually we we, we have any, you know, this is the thing about, so, so some people were know for a fact, but some, some other things, this is just like pure speculation. We just don't know. I know that people hate this answer. We don't know. But we don't know. We don't know how close he is to Putin. Is he's like a valuable and trusted ally or he's just a resource? We don't know. I certainly don't have access to what's going on in Putin's head. I'd be happy to share, but I don't. Uh, I, I surely don't have access to what's going on in Prigozhin's head. And to be honest, I think it's a good thing. I'm glad that I don't. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. On today's show, you heard about Yevgeny Prigozhin from journalists and experts Alexandra Pokapenka, Roman Badanin, John Lechner, Roman Dobrehotov, and Lisa Fokt. Thanks for tuning in. Again, happy Thanksgiving. See you next week. Mm-hmm.